0: mon amigos mon, no me, me I don't I didn't take Spanish. I don't know Spanish. I know Hola. French. I know bonjour mes amis.
1: Me amo Mariah y Estés The Takes it took a movie podcast. I probably got something wow, wrong that in that. Wow, that was
0: flawless. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Soy una para Calva? Calva?
0: Like <laughs> <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes? Hello all, welcome to 222222222222. Oh, I see. You're doing
2: you're doing the stutter.
0: I kind of was and then and then Ryan gave me this like dirty look. She gave me the bombastic side eye. Hi, welcome to our episode on The Pan's Labyrinth. we will be talking about that here shortly if you want to learn some behind the scenes, maybe about the special effects, about the history, about our artist Guillermo del Toro. Stay tuned. But before that, Slash, in the meantime, we are going to talk about some movies that we've watched recently. Because that's what we do. Because we talk about movies. And all this is, is an excuse for us to talk about movies.
2: We, in celebration of one of our friends passing to mm-hmm. Idaho. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's the same as dying.
2: It is effectively the same mm-hmm. as dying. Um, Rest in peace.
1: Samantha and Sunday.
2: We watched all... Three Lord of the Rings movies, not the extended edition, because that would have been... We didn't have the time. Insane. Yeah, we yeah, did this... Someone, someone will be mad at us for not doing that. We did this basically on two school nights. <laughs> so... <laughs> yes. We could, like, it's like, all right, let's get off work and then watch this yeah, until effectively we have to go to bed. Yes. So it was a lot. But it was fun. But we did it. We did do it.
0: I've, I, I had never seen the last two. I'd seen the first one. So it was my first time watching the last two. And I only spoiled it on accident once. It was when... Don't but, spoil it for them. Well, if they
2: haven't seen it at this point. I mean, <laughs> it's on them.
0: Yeah, but what if they're young? That, you, that argument is baby? always so stupid when, they're, when people are like, oh, it's been out for... It's like, yeah, what if a man was born just now? <laughs> Do you, want you, you wake up to your baby, and be like, oh, this movie's been out for 20 years. You've got no excuse. <laughs> okay. You've got no you excuse. You know what? That's actually a
2: really good argument for that. <laughs>
0: yeah. To all our new baby listeners, go watch Lord of the Rings. Watch, it's good. Hold on. I got a movie for you. Boss Baby. Boss Baby. Look it up. You're going to love it.
1: I'll be honest, I've had a lot on my plate and I've been busy, so I haven't been watching movies that challenge me really. I've been watching mostly just brain candy movies. And this one is included, and that is The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler. I had never seen it before.
0: It's a challenging movie. It was what?
1: it was it was fine.
0: All right. All right.
1: You know, the song where he says he wants
0: to kill himself. Yeah, everyone I was like, put a hand over your mic. That's funny. Put a hand over your mic. Put a hand over your mic. <laughs> All right, that's all you get. I don't have
1: much to say, but I watched it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is actually a couple weeks ago I watched this one. I'll be real quick. I watched the second of the new Planet of the Apes movies, which I just found out they're making another one. Yeah. There's a fourth one coming out. So I just watched the second one. I still need to watch the third one. The second one, I don't know if it's just because I was drinking or if it's because I had pizza or both. (laughs) But, like, I got, like, oddly into it. I was, like, really into the, like, political climate of these monkeys and the people and how their societies were trying to mesh and how, what was it, like a Hamlet-esque, like, Shakespearean play was happening before my eyes with these monkeys. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this is this is amazing. This is, like, beautiful.
2: Well, I haven't, I actually haven't seen any of the new
0: ones. Um, the first one is James Franco in it and John Lithgow. It's Okay. It's all right. I wouldn't say it's bad, but it's, it's like, like it's like it's a blockbuster movie. But
2: the monkey become intelligent.
0: Yeah, it's got there's this one moment where he does this thing kind of halfway through in a, in in like an enclosure and it's it's like whoa. You're like whoa. At least maybe if you like monkeys, you feel that way, but I was like whoa. And then the second one I was like whoa. I was into it and I can't wait to watch the third one. That's all I got to say. Monkeys. Monkey.
1: Monkey. But you know what? A monkey was not in this movie. No. That we're going to be talking about today. A fawn mm. was, but not a
0: monkey. No. Some other animals. Some little pixies. We have, for us first, before we get into our movie, a summary. Because some people, maybe it's been a while since you've seen this. Maybe you've never seen it. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you watch it because we're going to talk about spoilers and things. But we're going to give you a summary. This summary was written by me beforehand, and they're going to read, I don't know. It's kind of rough. This one's kind of rough, I think. All right, Mariah, but hit it. Mariah starts.
1: Once upon a time... A girl in a fantasy world wanted to be in the human world. She snuck into the real world, was blinded by the sun, and died. Her dad said she's definitely gonna return, though. Anyways, jumping to 1944 Spain under... Francois. Yeah, Francois. (laughs) Regime. Young Ophelia and her mother, Carmen, who's pregnant with complications. Nah, I thought she was pregnant with child are traveling into the Spanish mountains to live with a new
2: stepfather. He's actually sick with child. Yeah. Uh, Captain. It's a disease. (laughs) It's feeding on him. Captain
1: Vidal is a man who likes watches, violence, fascism, gloves, and violence. Mm -hmm. Now at her home, Ophelia uh, discovers a labyrinth and becomes familiar with her new place of living. A military captain hunting guerrilla fighters, killing them with bottles. A nice maid named Mercedes, honk honk. Is that because it's a car. It's a car. Okay. Yeah. And a doctor who tends to her mother. On her first night, a stick bug transforms into Gary Oldman. <laughs> I mean, a little person, right before her eyes, and invites her out to the labyrinth. That's Guys, it. if you don't know, that is a very specific reference.
0: <laughs> That's a tiptoes reference. Watch tiptoes, or look it up, and you'll understand.
1: Um. There she meets Fano. He tells her she's a princess of the moon and must complete three tasks. She's then given the book of Crossroads, whose words magically appear and provide her instructions. She follows the book's words out to the forest and confronts a toad that is poisoning a great tree. Go ahead. Much like Zachary Taylor, the 12th president of the United (laughs) States who died 16 months into his term of a stomach disease. Yeah. Ophelia then tricks the toad into eating stones that make him vomit his entire self onto the floor.
0: He
2: does do that. Just mm-hmm.
1: like Zachary Taylor, mm-hmm. Ophelia collects a key <laughs> that was on the toad and returns to dinner messy. Everyone is pissed about it. She got her dress dirty. Ophelia returns to the farm with the key and then it gets her next task from the book when suddenly mom's ovaries explode. The doctor says she needs hella rest to recover from her ovaries exploding. Meanwhile, Mercedes, the maid, and the doctor meet with the guerrilla fighters in the woods and cut a guy's leg off. It's okay. He let them do it.
2: Fano shows up and is like, why haven't you done the next task? And Ophelia's like, my mom's ovaries exploded. And Fano is like, okay, here's a mandrake root. Uh, It'll help her exploded ovaries. Now get your ass going. She goes into an underground cellar and finds the pale man chilling in his man cave. The creature with a smooth face and eyes on his hands like Zachary Taylor. You know, there's another man that that kind of looks like.
0: Yeah, I, was, I didn't want to bring up anyone uh, present. Okay. Like presently. I'm talking about the politician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, he's that's alive. what I just said. I don't want to talk about anyone who's like oh, currently by pre- alive.
2: <laughs> by present, I thought you meant in the room. And I was no, like, damn, don't no. talk about Mariah No, like I that. chose a
0: historical figure that no one would be upset with oh, if okay. I threw shade at him. Got because it, it's got Zachary got Taylor. It. Okay,
2: well, Zachary Taylor... Sorry. Ophelia eats some of his grub and he gets pissed. He eats two of her fairy friends and chases her out of his crib. Ophelia escapes and some conflict breaks out between the captain and the gorillas. They take some prisoners and play doctor with them until they give give up information on who's helping them. Captain learns the doctor is a rat and shoots him in the back like a hero. (laughs) He, He also finds... The mandrake root and has mom throw it in the fire and then her ovaries explode again. But the doctor was just freshly executed. Mom dies in childbirth. Long pause. <laughs> and awkward. Oh,
0: I was, <laughs> I was so uncertain how you would come to that. I'm like, either he's going to read it or he's going to listen to it. And either way, it's funny.
2: Mom dies in childbirth. Captain Vidal finds out Mercedes is an imposter when she tries to sneak Ophelia away and she gets captured. Mercedes, honk honk, manages to escape and cuts up Captain Vidal's cheek. She runs away and gets saved by the guerrilla fighters. Fauna returns and tells Ophelia to bring her brother to the labyrinth. The guerrillas close in as Ophelia escapes with her brother to the labyrinth and Vidal pursues. Fano tells Ophelia, Uh, hey, we need that motherfucker's blood because he's innocent, Uh, but she refuses to let them use her brother. Ophelia gets shot by daddy, and daddy gets shot by Mercedes, honk honk. Ophelia's blood drips into the portal, and she sees a magical world. She dies. And that's it. You didn't add the part where Mercedes, so like Vital is like, Mm. oh, tell my son that I what time I died and that I was an awesome man. And she's like, mm, no, bang. No.
1: I know, it's pretty baller.
2: It is pretty baller.
0: Anyways, that's our movie, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. It's a good one. It is uh, El Laberinto del Fano, Is that the other name? That's probably too Italian. Uh, I didn't take Spanish. I'm not good with Spanish, but I'm going to try. It's also, it's direct translation is Labyrinth of the Faun, but our known translation is Pan's Labyrinth which is funny because they don't call him Pan in the movie. His name is Fano. But this is a movie written and directed by Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. Miles, what other movies has uh, Mr. del Toro done?
2: Uh, he made, for some reason, all of Hollywood wanted to make Pinocchio movies at the same time. <laughs> he made probably the best one.
0: Yep, yeah, there's one. That's his most recent one, which is strangely relevant to all this conversation. So yeah. we'll come back to that.
2: He was supposed to make, if I'm not mistaken, he was supposed to make a Job of the Hut, yeah, gangster movie. Mm-hmm. that got canceled. Yes,
0: it's funny that you know a movie he was supposed to make but didn't make, but not. He did Pacific Rim.
2: Oh, he did Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. Really? He
0: did Shape of Water.
2: Yeah. Oh, oh, he also did all the Hellboys?
0: Yes. There we go hmm
1: nightmare alley and he's doing a frankenstein right now right yes
0: and he's doing a frankenstein movie right yeah. now so he's done a lot a lot of um creatures in his movies there's almost always some sort of creature or monster involved that's his thing because we've never done a guillermo del toro movie before i wanted to start a little bit with him because he deserves a little bit of attention mm. right he was uh, born into a catholic household in guadalajara mexico in 1964 and uh, as all the big directors seem to have done, he made lots of movies as a kid, shooting them with Super 8 cameras. I also did that, but I only had a flip phone, a black friend, and an airsoft gun, and my flip phone could not have more than like 10 seconds of footage. I don't know. Did you guys do movies?
2: I, You know what? It's crazy you mentioned this, because I actually, I was looking through this box at my uh, my mom's place, and I found the old, like kind of shitty, you know, like, 50-buck camera that I had, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it still had footage on it. Wow. And so there's footage of, like, me and my friend, (laughs)
0: like, (laughs) running around trying to... That's exactly what mine looked like. Yeah. It me and my friends being... Like, well, okay, I would normally be, like, a monster, or he would be the monster, and then we'd go... "Ah!" And then we'd chase each other. No, we were,
2: like, two prisoners escaping... like a prison and my dog was like the you know like the dog they used to chase people
0: down oh fun okay
1: i yeah i did videos too
0: yeah but really his his first love was uh stop motion and animation so he had a lot of stop motion short films as well one of them involved a potato killing his whole family and then it stepped outside (laughs) and got squished by a car
2: the potato kills
0: the available? potato kills the family.
1: Is that available to find anywhere? No. Damn. You can't find
0: Wait, it.
2: Wait, uh, so the, does the potato kill It's a serial killer his potato. Father, kills Guillermo his, del Taro's his father,
0: his family. Okay. I wasn't sure if the potato killed no. his family or the potato's family. No. No, humans. Humans are dying. Damn. I definitely I also,
2: interpreted that
1: as the potato kills the potato's family. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Sorry. I'll work on that next time when I talk about the potato killer. I also did a little stop motion stuff as a kid, but it was with um, a bionicle and my cousin's camera.
2: I did it it with Legos. I was going to say, I did it with Legos, but I I found out I didn't have the patience for it.
0: That bionicle footage might be out there somewhere. It was really cool. Guillermo del Toro (laughs) studied at uh, at a film school in Mexico, and he also studied special effects and makeup under Miles, don't laugh.
2: Oh, okay.
0: He's back. He's back for the third time. That is crazy. Yeah, Yeah. no,
1: he did the special effects for Taxi Driver. He did the special effects for The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Two movies Mm -hmm. that I've covered. The last two movies that I've covered on this pod. And now he's
0: the mentor to Mr. Guillermo del Toro.
1: That's so interesting how much Mm -hmm. Mr. Dick
0: Smith has come up. Yeah. That's fantastic. Guillermo spent 10 years as a special effects makeup designer. And like concept artist. Oh, but his his time with Dick Smith began when he wrote to Smith because Smith was offering like courses. Oh, please to like teach Call people. Him Dicks. <laughs> I don't know him that well. And uh, Guillermo applied, and he sent him a letter, and he was like, "Hey, I want to be in." And Dick Smith was like, "Cool." So Guillermo and his father met him in New York in like 1987, and they would just spend days together. They would hang out all the time. Guillermo would write him all the time. Dick Smith would write back. There, He was always really receptive with feedback and giving them support. Very good friends. Dick Smith recently passed away. And so you can actually find an interview with uh, Guillermo talking about how much he loved his friend. He gave him valu- valuable tips. We're going to try and talk more about special effects this episode. Such as never sculpt a face with expression. You want to leave it in repose so that the actor can give it re- expression. Ah, Right? And you also want to always strive for realism rather than effect. And the concept was you want to sculpt something as it is in reality and not like what you think it would be. Essentially just using reference. And if you're gonna give a man a big rooster turkey neck, look at big rooster turkey necks, you know. Don't just be like, hmm, I think it'll look like this and then do it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. But in top of, you know, studying for 10 years and doing special effects stuff, he made 10 short films before his first feature. And his first feature was going to be a stop motion movie about a lizard that eats garbage. Him and his team spent three years working on it until criminals broke into their studio and destroyed everything. Three Why? years of work gone.
2: Why would obliterated. they obliterated? Oh my god. I don't know. Gosh. But it was
0: puppets, it was sets, it was rigs, it was all of it, and it was gone.
1: oh my word
0: Yeah, who's out there just like
2: we're going for blood
0: we're going for just a fuck shit I don't know I guess you just like maybe you break in and you're like oh they don't have money so I'm just going to destroy it instead I don't know I don't know how that happens
2: wow people need to that
0: damn shot in the back but our boy Guillermo persevered and he said okay you know what I'm just going to do a live action movie this time so he did his first movie Kronos in 1992 at 28 years old it was an indie horror film, and it evolves like a device that gives you life. You don't really need to know the premise. But this was his first time working with Ron Perlman and another mm-hmm. actor, Federico Lupi, who the two of those would be frequent collaborators just collaborators with him in the future. And also, during this time, Del Toro would start a friendship with James Cameron because they met at a barbecue in L.A., Oh, that's nice. Sometimes Del Toro would stay in Cameron's guest house, and they would provide notes for each other's films. That's sweet. I don't know how this happens. We just how you go, get that. Yeah, Seems like we just got. I go just got to bar-beques. go to more barbecues, yeah. I guess, man. I don't know. But uh, at 33, Del Toro made his second feature, Mimic, for 30 million. And it was during the production of Mimic that he worked with Miramax. And with working with Miramax comes working with. The Weinsteins, who um, we don't need to go into detail. You probably know that they're not so good. If you don't, just look up that last name and see the first article that pops up. But uh, Weinstein just hated Del Toro's guts. He hated his work. He hated the way he did it. Every single decision they clashed on, he even went to set one time and was like, this is how you direct. Like, I'm going to show you how to direct. And he was just a big bitch. And uh, Del Toro said this was one of his worst experiences. He hated it. This is his least favorite movie of his whole filmography. It was just an awful time.
2: What a surprise. What a surprise <laughs> that someone as great as Guillermo Del Toro wouldn't like.
1: Well, also, you think about
2: how kind Guillermo Del
1: Toro yeah, is. And he... like in every interview and just everything that I've read about mm-hmm. the man, he seems just like a big old teddy bear, just an absolute yeah. sweetheart. And so to have weinstein (laughs) yeah like Uh, yeah you could already polar opposites and yeah i could imagine Mm -hmm. how that would be extremely frustrating and demoralizing and yeah i can understand how that would become his least favorite film
0: yeah del toro and his spirit to persevere through his set for his first thing being destroyed working with the weinsteins and all of this so,
2: so he went from having three years thrown in the garbage To having to work with Weinstein?
0: Yeah. Well, he he did have one feature between there, but yes. It was actually, and of course, James Cameron, who's a buddy of his, heard about his treatment on set. And during the 70th Academy Awards, Cameron and Weinstein got into an argument. That was very nearly a fight. And then also, at this time in the 90s, Guillermo's father had been kidnapped.
2: What the fuck?
0: Excuse me? He was kidnapped in Mexico. Kidnappers wanted $1 million in ransom.
1: I think I remember uh-huh. who paid for the ransom. Well,
0: yeah. So Cameron caught wind of this and was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like, let me help. And there's actually a misconception that Cameron paid for the one million.
1: Okay. That, yeah. He that's paid what I heard. for the
0: negotiator. Oh. And so Guillermo and his family did pay the one million to get his father back, who was returned after 72 days.
2: Holy shit! Wow. Did they
0: catch the no? Whoa. They did not catch him, but he was returned unharmed. And his family moved out of Mexico, Yeah, except for his dad. (laughs) Really? Yeah, his dad stayed. Wild. And there's a quote from Del Toro where he says something along the lines of, in the 90s, I worked with the Weinsteins, and my father was kidnapped, and the Weinsteins were worse.
2: Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Damn.
0: Again, this man just pushing through. This is the kind of, I feel like I would have been like, Dad's kidnapped. I'm done. Like, wow, this is too much. But no, he just keeps going. Then, uh, after Mimic, he made a movie called The Devil's Backbone, which is another Spanish speaking film set in the Spanish Civil War involving kids in an orphanage. Very similar to this movie. Del Toro considers Pan's Labyrinth a spiritual successor to The Devil's Backbone. Gotcha. Then he made Blade 2 in 2002. You made Blade 2? Mm hmm. Then he made Hellboy in 2004, and then he made Pan's Labyrinth in 2006. Let's get into some influences background for this movie. This movie takes place around the Spanish Civil War. Do you guys know any information about that?
1: A little, but I think you're gonna tell us
0: uh, uh, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna make this real brief. This isn't gonna be a history lesson. I'm just gonna give you like the real quick lowdown. 1936 to 1939, Spanish Civil War between the Republicans. and the nationalists the republicans were loyal to the pre-existing government and they were supported by the soviet union and mexico the nationalists were monarchists and conservatives and this other political group called phalangists and they were supported by italy and nazi germany so after what was this three years there was a total of 400 to 450 thousand casualties the Nationalists won, essentially, and they established a new state under Francisco Franco, and this began the Francois dictatorship. The, uh, the Civil War is seen as a struggle of class and religion and as fascism versus communism. That's why in the movie we see a lot of like, oh, you're a communist. Ah, we got reds. And Red propaganda. Ganda, those stinking reds. Our movie takes place five years after the Civil War, actually, in 1944, during World War II. And uh, this stepfather, Captain Vidal, is a phalangist, which means he is really into the Roman Catholic Church, basically. So that's uh, all you need to know. There's a dictatorship going on. We've got Spanish Maquis, who are basically guerrilla fighters fighting the dictatorship. In the woods, Captain Vidal is supported by and associated with fascism. And that's important because a lot of Del Toro's movies take inspiration from fascism and childhood. Let me, let me run you through some of them. Hellboy, if you remember in Hellboy, he's rescued from the Nazis mm-hmm. as a young lad, so he's saved from that like ideological grooming. Pinocchio is a very direct relation. Yeah. It's Italian fascism. You also have a young boy coming of age. But why this is important is Del, Del Toro has talked about the concept of authoritarianism turning into fascism. And he thinks that children that are taught and forced to conform will continue to do so as adults. And that abades things like fascism happening and why people can commit atrocities because they're raised to follow orders and do what they're told. And so he's trying to tell like anti-fairy tales or what he calls, he refers to certain fairy tales as being pro-institution. And those are the ones where it's like, if you go outside the Big warm monster is going to eat you for disobeying me. Or like, if you don't clean the dishes, you're going to lose a leg. And he's like. Prampus is going to show up and eat you. Destroy you. So he's like, I hate those fairy tales. I want to make fairy tales that promote disobedience in the sense of like, not necessarily always doing what you're told because it is a valuable trait to have. But also being like, it is dangerous out there. Not saying like, don't do what you're told all the time because the world can get you. No,
2: don't blind faith.
0: It's good to think for yourself and do your own thing and not just be afraid of what might happen. So that's his whole philosophy.
1: Yeah, I think that's very apparent in a lot of his works, as you just said, and I think it's very valuable. And it works as a story, clearly, because they're all great films.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Pinocchio gets shot. Kind of like Ophelia gets shot. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 anyways now we can start talking about this movie specifically over the decades of his 10 years and so of you know special effects and directing and blah 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 he had a lot of notebooks he just writes and draws ideas and concepts and creatures into his notebooks and he's got a tons of them he's got tons of them i kind of want to see some them.: you like, can you can see them really? i think they even have print versions you can buy oh shit and really I, yeah it's pretty cool that's really neat yeah. it's very neat During this time in like 2005, 2004, a lot of studios are coming to him and they're approaching and they're saying, hey, direct X-Men 3. Hey, direct this. And he's like, I don't know if I really want to do this. Like, I'm not horribly against it, but just like, I don't know if I want to do it. And then he's sitting on a taxi in London and then he gets off and he's like, shit, I lost one of my notebooks. He's like, like, my notebook was on that taxi cab. And then he goes home and he cries and he's upset because he's like, these notebooks are for my kids. Like... This is huge loss for me. And then he gets the notebook back. I think someone mailed it back. It must have been a taxi driver. Someone, he gets it back. And then he was like, this is my sign to go with Pan's Labyrinth because...
2: I oh, know. that was the one that was in the notebook that he lost? Yeah, I
0: think so. I, but either way, he took it as a sign to just go with Pan's Labyrinth. And so he's like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass on X-Men 3 or whatever other bullshit they're offering me.
2: Ah, so I, I'm looking at his notebook drawings right now. These are... The etchings of a madman. <laughs> Wait, can I see? <laughs> yeah, flash it real quick. Yeah, just like it, it, s- it.
0: Scroll through those. It looks like a like an ins- wow. insane doctor's. I mean, they're really cool. That is. They're amazing.
1: Yeah, those are incredible. I wouldn't say those are sketchings of a madman. That seems very organized to me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's
0: like <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of scrawling words. It's but it, it's like. I mean, it literally is
2: just like words wrapped going around these etchings. Mm. You
1: can look them up. What did, what did you Google, Miles?
2: Just Gamble, the Toro Gamble no del drugs. Toro
0: notebook.
1: Anyway, you guys can look them up. They're really cool.
0: Yeah, but in those books, he has like every idea for all of the creatures and things he comes up with. And for every idea, there's 20 branching ideas. Real quick, the fawn came from a dream. Came from a childhood dream he had of seeing a fawn or a satyr step out from behind a grandfather clock. And so that's something he he explored further. As a kid, he just loved folklore, though, and fairy tales. So I'm sure part of that was just like he read about it and blah, blah, blah. But like, and although this is an original story, it takes a lot of inspiration from mythology and other authors and blah, blah, blah. Of course, we've got the Labyrinth, which is Greek mythology that's got a Minotaur in it, right? We all know that one. And Pan, so, Pan is the fawn. Pan is the Greek god of the wild and shepherds and flocks. Pan is depicted as a fawn or a satyr. If you've read Percy Jackson, you know what a satyr is. It's half man, half goat.
2: All sexy. Yeah. I've seen
0: Hercules. Oh, that's the sexiest version of a satyr, I think, on screen. 100%. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, so Pan is one of the only Greek gods confirmed 100% actually die. And even then, it's not really elaborated on in text how he died. There's a sailor who was commanded by a divine voice to tell everyone Pan is dead. However, Pan also means the word all in Greek, so it could also be interpreted as all is dead. And to this extent, people believe that they're actually referring to Jesus. Because God is the all one God. So Pan is also related to Jesus in some extent, which also relates to our movie because there is some religious symbolisms involved. What are you talking about? Willis. So I thought that was interesting. Regardless of what it means, people do mark the death of Pan as the beginning of the end of Greek deity worship. Damn. Like this is just when people stop, again, because Jesus died and then the Bible comes around and then that kind of just sort of everything. That's its own thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Also, Pan, in Greek mythology, was just a sexual miscreant. Hell yeah. He was a sex beast. Fuck yeah. One story says he pursued a wood nymph until she turned herself into a reed to escape him. And then he didn't know which reed she was. So he grabbed a bunch of reeds of different lengths and bundled them together. And then he was like, this sounds kind of fire. And then he made the pan flute. Oh, okay. So that is the lore of the pan flute. In case anyone was curious,
1: you know, when I woke up this morning and I knew that we were recording Pan's Labyrinth, I did not think you were going to be talking about a pan flute. The
0: pan flute, yeah. it relates, and that's also why he's got a wood. He has a wood penis in this movie.
1: Miles picks <laughs> up like, his phone. It's there.
0: And watching behind the scenes and seeing like um, the actor in the suit, it's like, oh, there. It is. When you know, when he's in broad daylight, you're like, yeah, hmm.
1: <laughs> he's got a little woodpecker. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, it's just like a little Peter. Yeah. (laughs) But anyways, uh, Guillermo has said that he considers Pan's Labyrinth, in general, a layman's riff on Catholic dogma. Now, getting into our basic just like creative influences in terms of the fairy tales and stuff, Guillermo's got a lot. He did a lot of reading as a boy, a lot of fairy tales, a lot of books. I think Ophelia is just kind of Guillermo himself reading fairy tales. The Mandrake Root specifically, he asked for a Mandrake Root for Christmas. Cause he had read somewhere that they turn into like people. So he's like, I want for Christmas so I can have like a little wood creature. Wow. Yeah. But also I, I looked up the lore of mandrake roots and <laughs> the lore of a mandrake or one of them, cause you know, everything has different lores, is that they are born when a hanged man's ejaculate falls onto the ground and inseminates the earth. That's how you get a mandrake root. Excuse me? And the lore is that the mandrake root would then grow into a person.
2: Well, sounds uh, <laughs> uh, Sounds like whoever came up with that one had an audio asphyxiation fetish. <laughs>
0: Perhaps. I don't know. That Anyways, is bonkers. I bring you the lore. <laughs> uh, the book of Crossroads, the one that Ophelia has, can be traced to an Argentine author named George Louis Borges who had two short stories that explored the concept of like an infinite book, like a book that would never stop writing itself. Mm. So that's kind of where that comes from. Of course, there's a lot of influence to the Lewis Carroll, Alice books, going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. We know that. He read a couple of books about Pan specifically. There's a book called The Great God Pan, a book called Pan's Garden, and even some artwork by Francisco Goya, such as You Mm. Guys Will Know, Saturn Devouring His Son, yeah. Which we oh. see sort of briefly when the pale man pale eats man the fairies. Pale man is eating the fairies. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. the very direct kind of visual. It's it's cool because it's like it's not like directly imitating that painting. You see it and you get the same like energy from it as the painting. I like Goya. He's got a lot of dark paintings. I like that. All these creative elephants elements we can make. Uh, we can get to our movie. We're going to talk about production. I actually hardly have any production for you guys. Really. Yeah, no, hardly anything. They shot a movie. I can, <laughs> I can you tell. You know,
2: sometimes it just does,
0: like, it's they just, just like... They just shot a movie. Yeah, they just... Same same for casting. They just cast it. Try to, like, dig and find things about the casting, and there's, like, nothing. No, dude, it's just sometimes
2: like, movies just... They just happen. They just, yeah. like,
0: nothing goes horribly wrong. No. It's just, like... I have, like, a tidbitter here, too. I can tell you that they shot in the Guadarrama mountain range in central Spain from June to October in 2005. Uh, I can tell you it was done on a budget of 19 million. Also, on their locations, there was, I think, a fire warning, but it sounds like the owners just really did not want them to do anything like with fires or explosions or anything. So, whenever you see fires and stuff, it's CG. It's people using steam, light, fog, and waving flags in front of like car headlights to try and get flickering fire, as well as CG. Yeah, because the big explosions are all. Yeah, there's one explosion. There is an explosion of a truck. There's like a truck exploding. Yes. That is one of, if not the only explosion. And that was the last thing they did on location because they blew it up and then they just got out of there. Because they're like, we don't want them to come tell us that we weren't supposed to do that. So <laughs> that's the last thing we're going to do. That's, that's when they like make the diversion with the mm-hmm. train and then go. Yes. And, yeah. I believe so. And that's, that's basically it for uh, production that I can tell you. Uh, we're moving on to the main course. We're moving on to the French toast of our episode. You
1: count French toast as a main course?
0: Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The creatures. We're getting on with effects. Okay. Specifically, the special effects. The practical in-camera effects. Nice. Mostly, the special effects were done by a company called DDT Effects. And the visual effects were done by a company called Cafe Effects. Del Toro, when he was making the creatures, was like, I don't want these to look like anything else. I don't want people to be like, oh, that looks like Frankenstein, or like, oh, that looks like uh, that thing from... No, we don't want any of that. He's like, these got to be original, but like, we want them to be fairy tales. So, Pale Man, is basically an ogre, but he was like, I don't want to just do an ogre. Let's make him like different. What
1: if he was Shrek?
0: Yeah, what if he was Shrek? No, that's been done. That's been done at least three times before. Four times. Uh, That's been done five times before. There's five Shrek movies. Are there five? I think so. And uh, the concept team, normally when you have a concept team creating creatures for a movie, the director comes over and they go, wow, looks really good. Maybe make it like more green or something. That should probably do it. But with Guillermo del Toro, a man who spent most of his life creating creatures and knows what he's doing, will come over and be like... (laughs) That sucks. Maybe if you make his arm longer here, put a joint there. Maybe let's put some horns here. No, scratch that. Wipe his feet. Fi- no. How about we do? And then the concept team was like, "Oh my god." So he's just like not like necessarily demanding, but like he, he knows. Just, he just knows what he wants. He, he knows how to do it. He knows what he wants. He knows how to do it.
1: This makes me think about the Ghostbusters episode with Slimer <laughs> and how they're like, make it look, make That's it look about, like yeah. Belushi, and he was like, uh. Didn't do anything, uh, yeah. and then they were like, nailed it and hit it. it. See, normally,
0: normally they're just like, yeah, it looks good, but he's like, mm. yeah, no.
1: I mean, I feel like that's nice in a lot of regards.
0: No, I think it's good, and I think it works for the film in terms of the creature design. I mean, yeah, it came out really good. In fact, here, let's start with one of the big ones. We're gonna talk about Fawn. Fawn, Fawn, though, fun, for no. the uh, the con plays Fawn. Give me, give me like five seconds. That's- you take that gun, put that back into your holster. Right now. Thank you. We're not jumping that mother right now. For the concept of Fano, Del Toro wanted something more than just a fawn, like we said, right? He's he like, him a like, wiener. What if he gave him a wiener and he said, what if he's like wood? We'll make him like a tree guy and he sounds like wood when he walks and stuff. They're like, okay, yeah, that's different. People haven't seen that. We'll do it that way. So he's made of like moss, bark trees and stuff. Like lore wise, not actually. Uh, he was played by, Miles, get ready with that gun. Actor Doug Jones. <sniffs> <laughs> Got him. Actor Doug Jones, if we can just take a moment to talk about this man, is one hell of a creature actor. He started as a contortionist mm-hmm. and moved into acting. And he's also just a good actor in general. Not to, I don't want to overlook that. I think people are like, oh my God, he's such a good creature actor. But I'm like, that also means he's a good actor. Yeah. Been in most of Del Toro's movies. I think the first one I worked on together was Hellboy. And after that, Del Toro was like, I need you and everything. You're so good. Who was he in? He was Sorry, Abe Sapien. The hmm? Abe Sapien, the fish guy. The like yeah. friend. And he talks mm-hmm. all smart. He was the silver surfer? He was the silver surfer. He was also oh, Zombie what? Billy in Hocus Pocus.
2: He was the fucking moon guy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> For the... Is that McDonald's or I Big think, Mac? I think it's McDonald's. The McDonald's moon Moon guy. That's Doug Jones. Uh, yeah. Damn, that's sick as fuck. So, he's done a lot of costume work. Yeah. Because he's very good at it. And uh, after after Hellboy, Del Toro emailed Doug Jones and was like, I need you in this one. Like, this is for you. Like, you're the best. And Doug Jones was like, Okay, yeah, I'll do it. And then he's reading it and he's like, This isn't Spanish. I can't speak Spanish. I can't do this. And then Del Toro was like, No, it'll be fine. Like, we'll all be there. Like, I'll coach you through it. Like, trust me, it'll be cool. He's like, okay, I'll do it. So he ended up doing it despite not knowing how to speak that goddamn language. Damn. And uh, with every character, with every creature comes its own unique challenges that you got to get through. And Jones has remarked that he thinks of his work not only as an actor, but as an athlete. And that he has to just kind of push himself to get through The makeup and the performance part of his job.
1: Well, the costume, it looks like he's like squatting the entire time. Yeah,
0: The fawn required a lot of squatting. And I have a quote from him saying, my thighs start to tremble and I have to forget that I have weak legs and just push through it, find the character and make the scene happen. Yeah, just like the willpower to just like to sit there and make up for hours and then do the performance for hours and to just like be able to push yourself through it. Which, speaking of, let's elaborate a little bit on the makeup process for Fawn. <clears throat> First, they apply a chest piece, a skin-tight chest piece that is made of silicone. He's just covered in talcum powder, just baby powder all over his body mm. in the suit, just so they can put this skin-tight thing on him. Not breathable. You're sweating in there. This also held batteries for servos in Fawn's head that would turn the ears and blink the eyes. Mm. After that, he's wearing a foam jacket that goes over the chest and torso. Then they spend about five hours applying makeup to his face, which is mostly foam latex. So all of his face is covered. It's really just his chin that is like his actual skin. And everything else is like prosthetic stuff put I feel on his like I need to like head.
1: pull up a photo so I can... That's mm-hmm. what I'm doing right now. I'm, he I'm has,
0: a, he has right. a plastic piece that goes on his nose that kind of makes the bridge taller to flatten his nose up to his forehead. Then they have silicone legs that go on that are, again, skin-tight, filled with baby powder. Then they have silicone arms that go on, again, skin-tight, filled with baby powder. Then he would stand on 8-inch high stilts, and the fawn's legs would go backwards at his knee and then reconnect at his foot, so it looks like the fawn has a reverse joint, kind of like a dog or a cat. And then his actual leg would be in a green screen suit And then they would remove that in post. Oh. Yeah, so originally when I watched it, I
2: thought what it was was that he was like on his knees and he was
0: kind of walking on his knees was the Mm -hmm. main thing and his legs were like back inside. No, it's his legs are there and then the costume goes back behind his leg.
1: Oh, here's a photo of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, so I thought his legs went back into... Back into
0: with the actual yeah. costume. Yeah, you know? that's what I also thought. Not just one, one little piece of green screen. Hmm. And uh, each leg took about 30 minutes to put on. He wore skin tight gloves. And lastly, there was a pair of horns he'd wear. that were about 10 pounds on oh, his wow. head. And uh, those were the effects for the blinking eyes and the flicking ears were controlled. Oh, by... we're inside there. That's yeah. That's cool. Yep. And those were controlled by um, effects artists off screen. That is the makeup process for Fawn, and I want to draw us to a specific part. There's a bit that the effects team talked about where he's in the bedroom with Ophelia. Um, I think this is after she's done The Pale Man, and he's mad at her for doing it, and then he's like, we're going away, right? whatever. So Mm -hmm. in this specific scene, he's in costume, he's on stilts, He's walking backwards in complete darkness to a specific mark. He's speaking Spanish, a language he doesn't know. And then he has to like duck down real quick out of sight. And everyone on set was like, how are you doing this? Like, this is an impossible task. Yet He just does it. He's just built different and he can just (laughs) do that. That's insane. I couldn't walk backwards and speak Spanish now in broad daylight on my own feet.
1: Uh, What's funny is that I did point this out to Stefan when we were watching it. Whenever Fano, like, quote unquote, disappears, he just kind of steps back and, like, kind of (laughs) crouches down or, like, turns. And then it just, like, will either fade or cut to Ophelia. Mm. And so I just imagine, I don't know, immediately as I'm watching it, I just imagine, like, the camera rolling as, like, he just continues to, like, (laughs) huddle into, like, a Mm. little ball. And then I just imagine, like, Del Toro being, like, cut.
2: (laughs) I like to imagine that in the world, he curls up into a little ball and then he's, he's just gone. Yeah. He like, he like <laughs> he just into continues a little, yeah. curling
0: into a ball. Uh, but yeah, man's built different. And despite this like uh, makeup process and everything he has to do, he said that the fawn was one of the least irritating and most comfortable things he's ever had on. Really? And I don't know if that is just by his standards or if it would work for our standards as well. But he said one of the main reasons was that the legs connected to a belt at his hips. And he said, all the weight was on my hips, where normally costumes put all the weight on your shoulders. Mm. Oh. And because it was in pieces, he had more like flexibility and movement to do things. Gotcha. So he was, like, to his...
2: think being the McDonald's moon man was more uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> Fano, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is Fawn and Doug Jones. What a master. He also played the pale man. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Pale Man, let's just get into the Pale Man's uh, symbolisms real quick. Guillermo has, yeah, so he's said specifically the Pale Man represents all institutional evil. Kind of specifically, hmm. he's relating to the Catholic Church. But uh, of course, the Pale Man is, you know, insatiable hunger for the innocent and feeding on children.
1: Yeah, do you remember how there was a pile of shoes? I was
0: going to say, and a little bit of. Yeah, some, uh, again, symbolism for. Fascism. We're in World War II. Yeah. So again, the institution. Going back to what we're talking about before him being anti-establishment, sort of being like, go against the grain of what these systems are doing. Also with the pale man, he's referred to the slits on his hand as stigmata, which if you guys don't know what that is, those are like wounds relating to the wounds Jesus suffered on the cross. Mm. So the slits on his hands with the eyes are supposed to be directly related to. And the eyes... Can be traced to Saint Lucy, who had her eyes gouged out. And Del Toro saw a statue of Saint Lucy as a kid, and her eyes were displayed on a platter in front of her. So that's why he's got his eyeballs on a platter as well. Yeah. There is also a creature in Japanese folklore called the—I don't know how to pronounce it—the Tenom, which has eyes on his hands. There's some of the background for the Pale Man. It's
1: kind of. Picking stuff from different stuff here and stories there. and lore yeah, and saints and all that.
0: Now the Pale Man did not start out as the Pale Man. It went through a lot of different variations. The first concept was the Nerve Ghost. The what? The Nerve Ghost. Um, it was a disembodied nervous system with electric hands and no, face. Wait, I actually
2: saw that was the image in you showed the notes.
0: me. Yep, that was the picture you showed me. That was the first variation. Then there was a second variation that was a wood puppet creature. Again, we're coming back to Pinocchio. And in some versions, he grows from a tree. In other versions, he's like a cabinet that when you open him up, Yeah, you he see, was also in the notes. You see some fleshy insides. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. So those are his original drawings you can find in the notes. Then the actual concept of the Pale Man came about. The prompt he gave the effects team was imagine a really fat guy suddenly became very he skinny lost all his weight. and he lost all his weight and his skin's like flabby. That was the reference point he gave them. And originally his eyes were supposed to be floating in his face, like a gelatinous face. Ooh. And his eyes were just like floating around in it. Hmm. But when the effects team came back with a bust, like a concept for the pale man, he was looking at it and he was sketching it. And then he just sketched the face off of it. And he's like, it looks better without eyes on this face. So let's just, smooth over his face and then the effects team was like bro we spent like 15 hours on this yeah you you want us to just remove the face he's like yeah you're like god damn it okay and then they did it and they're like yeah he's right it does look really good yeah
1: also if you google doug jones pale man you get a lot of really fun photos of doug jones with like the bust of the pale Mm -hmm. man or
0: like posing with the statues Mm -hmm. yes doug jones is a fun character
1: and you can also see how they did the uh, the legs, the suit, and the legs yes. on him.
0: Yep, I was just gonna say the suit was basically a silicone suit with foam latex on his upper body, and then some of the suit goes over the front of Doug Jones' legs, and then the rest of his legs are in green screen, and then they take that out in post as well, so it looks like he's got skinny little bone legs.
2: He moves really good. Yeah, he wiggles around and... when like he's like motionless, and it goes like and his head goes and he puts the eyeballs in his hands.
0: It's almost like he's a master at his job. He's amazing. Doug Jones, sleep with me. No, don't do that. Actually, just get me, I want your job is what I'm saying. If you can get me a monkey job or something like that, I just want to be like a little guy who moves around funny and if it happens to be under the covers then so be it. (laughs) Um, Last thing on the Pale Man, Doug Jones could only see out of the nostrils of the Pale Man yeah sense.
1: looking at that, that's kind of what i figured yeah yeah
0: now we're going to talk a little bit about the fairies they're based on bugs right mm-hmm. the fairies are basically all of the effects they're all yeah. visual effects they fly yeah, around I figured yeah both when they're people and when they're little bugs they're flying around but for reference for the bugs guillermo provided his own taxidermied specimens of stick bugs if you don't know this guillermo's house is basically a museum And he's got tons of just weird like curios and things in it. And he owns just a lot of like taxidermied specimens. So he provided some of his own. And then they also had two stick bugs live with the effects team. And their names were Cheech and Chong. And sadly, during filming, they passed away. And so in the credits, you can see Cheech and Chong. May they rest in peace. (laughs) Shout out to Cheech and Chong. (laughs) Uh, the Mandrake, not much to say. It's puppetry in animatronic work. Sometimes, I think in a couple shots, it's a VFX thing. Pretty cool, but nothing really to jump into there. Got it. Last one. no, nah, second to last one. We'll talk about the Toad. He's a creature that's poisoning a tree from the roots up. Again, more institutional symbolism there. And uh, there was actually a fight sequence planned. Oh. Slash like a kind of like... I don't know, maybe she's, like, dodging him more rather than, like, them fighting. Yeah, one
1: thing that was interesting when I was watching, well, because I've seen this before, so I guess re-watching this, mm-hmm. is I felt like that sequence was over very quickly.
0: Yes, so she was supposed to go into, like, this big chamber of the tree, and they had built a set for it, and there's, like, this giant candelabra at the top. It's, like, dripping amber, and they were supposed to have, like, this, like, huge confrontation. Not huge, but, like, a confrontation in a the boss middle. boss-level fight. A boss fight when they are talking about it, they wanted an animatronic frog, you know, that could do some things. And Guillermo's talking with DDT and they're like, we need to make sure it's not too heavy. Like, are you sure you guys can do this? And they're like, yeah, we're sure it's, it's not going to be too heavy. And then Guillermo says, I quote, DDT decided they could handle it and the frog would not be too heavy. But of course the goddamn frog shows up and it's too heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So they sit him in the middle of this room, this big set they made. And they're like, the set looks huge. He's like a little frog. He's not that intimidating and he can't do anything. What do we do? We can't like shoot this. And then they decided if we just put him in the tunnel where Ophelia crawls, she was originally just supposed to crawl through the tunnel and nothing else would happen. They're like, if we just put him in the tunnel, he'll look bigger because he's in the tunnel. And then we don't have to worry about him like jumping around. So they just completely scrapped that whole scene. Hmm. Guillermo said the scene was one thing on Friday and another thing on Monday. Damn. So that's why it feels kind of like- show business, baby. Mm-hmm. That's show business, baby. And they rolled with it, and uh, they made it work, though. Yeah. But again, sad to see a big set piece that just they didn't use. And finally, I'll just mention Captain Vidal when he gets his cheek cut. Yeah. Um, When he's stitching it in the mirror in that scene, he had a makeup appliance attached on top of his cheek on his lip, and then his lip underneath was painted blue in between like the cut. So they could take that out in post. But then for stitching, he was actually stitching together the makeup appliance with a needle. And so if he messed it up or if he went too deep, he would have actually been, you know, puncturing his skin. Bravo to uh, Sergio Lopez.
2: The fucking bit where he drinks and you can like
0: see it soak the pad. And then it shoots out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And with that. To be honest, that's pretty much it I have for you guys. That's There's, Pan's Labyrinth. That's Pan's Labyrinth. It's a lot of effects, not a lot of production, not much to say in casting. Uh, we'll,
2: I got a lot to say anyway. So.
0: We'll have, yeah, a lot on the back end. I can tell you it premiered at Cannes in 2006. Overall, it made $89 million in the box office. Stephen King attended a screening with Del Toro, and Del Toro said he saw him squirm during the Pale Man scene, and he said it felt like winning an Oscar. Mm. That, and, I, yeah, um, I, that would make sense. I can tell you it won and was nominated for some Oscars. Let me pull it up quick. I have I'm have i going to my...
2: guess. Yeah. Costumes. Makeup. Makeup. Yeah. Ding, ding, costumes, ding. makeup. There's one. Oh, costumes isn't one? No.
0: Really?
1: Is, uh...
0: Technically, it would be wardrobe. Wardrobe is the award. Is oh, really? Is it
1: the, just the, one of the effects? or
0: um, It won Sound? cinematography.
1: Oh, really?
0: Mm-hmm. And one, oh, uh, I can talk about that a little bit too. Because I read that too and I was like, interesting. Yeah, one, makeup, art direction, and cinematography. Okay. It was nominated for screenplay and music. What okay, nominated
1: for now? cinematography alongside Pan's Labyrinth was The Black Dahlia, Children of Men, The Illusionist, and The Prestige. Oh, I really?
0: Didn't... Children of Men. Prestige? I'm good. surprised that Children of Men didn't take that. Yeah, anyway. But which is also directed by. Alfonso Coron, who is friends with Del Toro, hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Emmanuel Lubezki.
0: Yep. Do you are you going to talk about interpretations or what are you talking about? I was
2: just, I was just going to talk about um
0: main girl, Ophelia. Ophelia.
2: Usually, I'm. How do
1: you do it? How do you take something in but not take something in?
2: Uh, I don't know. Uh, usually, Ophelia is rather smart. Ah, you're jumping right to a thing, okay? But her play in the pale man's place, yeah, actively not good. But yeah, I agree. I think um, her
1: taking the grapes is very out of character mm. for her. I do think I don't understand if maybe if it was like the environment was like alluring and that's kind of the thing.
2: Yeah,
0: well, but like
1: I didn't really feel that.
0: Those grapes did look mighty choice. So uh, I'll use this as a vehicle to jump into some of our other things. The, the whole theme and concept that Del Toro is going here, especially with the anti-fairy tale, is he's valuing disobedience over anything. But the concept here being that there's a thought, there's a theory, it's a pretty strong theory, that the pale man is the fawn and mm. that he set up the test. And the test was actually to see if she would eat something to make sure that she wouldn't just blindly obey what he told her. And so that would explain why the two fairies that Pale Man eats are there at the end, and it would also show oh, us... Oh, are that, they? Yeah, they appear at the very end when she's in the like yeah, weird place around them. on the chairs and stuff. Is that
1: also why he takes forever to get her and doesn't actually get her?
0: Yeah, I think so. It implies that, yeah, the fawn never put her in any real danger because he was always, like, the one orchestrating these tests. So I, I, I think the theory is that, like... You want to make sure she's disobedient enough and that she's willing to like, go save her brother and do the things she's not told to do. Yeah. That also would be seen in like the final test, her being rewarded for not letting him pick the brother. Rewarded as in <laughs> shot and yeah, killed. Well, it depends on how you see it.
2: Well, at that and drawing a door on the ceiling, not the best move. No. Yeah, I don't know why he chose the ceiling. You could have picked the exact same spot it was last time
0: and she would have just crawled right through. So doing the research for this and hearing Guillermo talk about this movie and like what he put in this movie, I told Mariah this. Of course, like all the fa- fairy tale stuff, the fantasy stuff is real. Like doing the research, I'm like, it's real. And then watching the movie, I'm like, I don't think it's real. I don't think it's real. <laughs> but so I'm I'm in a particularly like confused state where I'm like, I thought it was, but now I don't think it is. He Guillermo claims there's no real answer. However, he said that there are clues saying that they are real. Well, because the, the mandrake does work. Yes, I think that would probably be one of them. I mean, I guess you could say, oh, it's coincidence that the second it burns, she just like goes into labor or whatever. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is th- there's this theme of finding immortality through not fearing death and that Ophelia achieves that because she went into death without fear. There's a quote Del Terro specifically refers to called the tyrant's reign ends with his death but the martyr's reign starts with his death yo and so that would be captain videl captain videl is a man of pride who is afraid of death and is killed but ophelia is not afraid and dies and would i guess become a martyr yeah so this whole thing is about martyrdom and catholics and not obeying fascism and blah 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 and all of that
2: another thing when the doctor dies mm-hmm. and he gets shot and he just like takes off his glasses <sighs> and like pinches the bridge of his nose. I thought that was that one pretty hard.
0: Yeah. It's pretty cool. Man's is a baller. He do be balling. I like how all the injuries sustained in this movie are like kind of weird. Yeah. I was telling Mariah this. Was, I'm sure she'd notice. That's not like. Yeah. He gets his cheek cut. Mm-hmm. He gets stabbed like really strangely. Yeah. Um, the guy gets shot in the back and then continues to walk. One guy gets like shot in his hand. Mm.
2: Yeah, when he's like just like pawing at the yeah. gun so
0: he doesn't get shot. That shit went hard too. And then, and then Vidal gets shot again in the cheek. It's just kind of like a weird, you know, normally you don't see that. And the blood goes into his yeah, eye. Into his eye. So, There's uh,
1: the nose that gets
0: beaten at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. the bottle, the pump, pump, pump. It like shows violence in a different way. And I think by just simply showing it in a different way, you're kind of like, ooh. All right, guys, go ahead. Go ahead, guys. Come on. Oh, okay. Dinner's, um, the food bowl's out. Come on. Come on.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to think of like what else to say, but I think you kind of covered all of it. Oh, uh, yeah, Miles brought up the point about like the disobedience. I think that theory about the pale man is very interesting, and I think I buy into it. I, yeah, I fuck with it. As to whether I think the fawn is real, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, the mandrake, yeah, definitely implies. Supports. Yeah, but I think in general, I don't really think it's real. Uh, I was wondering if you guys have any thoughts or opinions about the opening of the film, um, and the fact that it's shot in reverse. For those of you who maybe like don't remember, it opens with Ophelia laying there as she's mm-hmm. bleeding, but it's run in reverse, so like the blood dripping out her nose goes like back up and that yeah. kind of stuff.
2: Y- you know, you could see it as a way of it being like she dies, but she is not dead because she's you know in the kingdom. It's just like a here's what's gonna happen. Let's reel it back to get to the beginning. <laughs> There's a voiceover. I'm Ophelia. You're probably wondering
1: yeah. how yeah. I got here.
0: It's kind of a crazy story, mm. and then it opens. That's my mom. Um, you could maybe interpret it as being an event that happens directly after the end of the movie, so maybe it's like, oh, that's her like resurrecting or something, which if that yeah. were the case, would bring us back to Jesus and the yeah. church and stuff, but I, I don't have anything specific on
1: I do think it implies that after death there is something for her, which would then imply that everything was real and she does get to the kingdom. But like I said, I'm like, I'm not sure if I buy that. Anyway, definitely wanted to bring that up. It's
0: just a theory. A game game theory. theory. You know, it's just a fun little romp through fascist Spain. Mm Hmm. Hey, but yeah, it's a good movie. The effects, the costuming... Spot on. The creature designs, the concept, amazing. I had actually... Iconic. I had a quick question
1: about Doug Jones. First of all, if you guys don't know of like other stuff he's done, he was also the amphibian man in Shape of Water. Yep. Well, he was also the, the
2: moon man uh, in the McDonald's commercials. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm.
1: we've made that clear. Mm-hmm. Um, Because he didn't speak Spanish, did you find anything that talked about like... He's dubbed. The, that's what I was going to get
0: dubbed. to. He did speak Spanish on set, but not well enough for it to be in the movie, so they dubbed him.
1: I, okay, because first of all, I, I did think it was dubbed as I was watching it. Then I noticed in the credits, there was somebody credited as his
0: voice. Yeah.
1: But yeah, so I was going to ask, was the plan always to dub him? Or were they hoping that like his Spanish was um, going to be good enough?
0: I don't think it was always to dub him. Okay. I think they just kind of were like, eh, it's not quite there. We, gotcha. okay. we need to dub it.
1: Did he say how he felt about that at all? or
0: He was fine with it. He okay. was really nervous about having to speak Spanish. And whenever gotcha. he was doing makeup, he would just practice his lines over and over and over and over.
1: Yeah, I feel like I noticed a couple times when it like matched up just like slightly off or yeah. something. If you like really were paying attention. So anyway, just wanted to ask about that.
0: I think that's it. Sounds like hey, it. Sounds like about rating it. Yeah, I know. Sounds like everyone's tapped out. Um, yeah, I think I'll give this movie. Oh, jeez. I'm gonna give this movie seven
2: point five McDonald's Moon Men. I don't. Nah, we'll go with eight. We'll go with eight McDonald's Moon Men out of ten. Just because of all the times this movie is like it just go hard. it go hard. Like, the fucking bottle smash, and then he shoots the guy, and the, like, soldier that's holding him just, like, kind of, like, moves to the side, because he knows. (laughs) I thought about that, too. He, like, moves to the side, because he's like, oh, he's gonna shoot him through the fucking chest. Death of the guy who stutters, the death of, like, all these people. It's all really cool, and, like, you know, it looks good. Yeah. And then the fucking, when he gets his mouth cut, and it goes, it's just...
0: All of it yeah. looks really good. Uh, yeah, I'll give it eight. I don't know, crunchy, chewy, al dente fairies <laughs> out of ten.
1: I'm gonna give it seven point five gunshots next to baby's ears out of ten. I don't know if you noticed. Baby. There's two guns that go off yeah. right next to a baby, the baby brother's head, and I that baby's ears.
0: Yeah, he's
2: ruined. Ears that, are just ruined. No, that baby's malleable. He'll pop back. He's destroyed. I mean, you could like. This is a fun science fact. Don't do this. But you could lobotomize half a baby's brain and they just grow it back. All right, Mariah, where um, can you
0: find us on the socials? All right, well, that's uh, a fun science fact. You can find that nobody us gives on a shit about it, guys. Twitter and
1: Instagram. We're mostly just on Instagram at uh, the It Took. Or if you have any movie suggestions in the future, want to send us a question, comment on today's episode, anything of that kind, you can do so and email us at Took at gmail.com
0: uh i guess that's real the baby fact yeah that's real baby fact that's a
2: yes that's a real yeah that's that's what i said wow i ain't lying that's why i was like this is a weird one but i gotta go test it
0: didn't i specifically
1: say don't test it yeah uh so i'm actually not going to be leading the next episode because oh is (gasps) wendy coming back no
2: there's a whole new
1: person. We have a new guest arriving on the pod, and his name is Mister Jimmy Levins. Um, we went to school with him. He's a good old homie. He made of bread? No. Um, and is he the- is going to be leading discussion on "Catch Me If You Can." Mm-hmm. Basically, I am shooting my thesis film, and I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't have time. So uh, he's gonna help us out and take over for the next episode. I'll still be there for it. But just reacting, not not leading y'all through the discussion. So, yeah. Catch Movie Can next with uh, our special guest, Jimmy. And so, we'll have
0: to be nice and not go off on a tangent every two minutes. We'll see ya. you again mm-hmm. in a couple
1: weeks for Catch Movie Can. In the meantime, stay safe, have fun, watch movies, and don't be a fascist.
2: Yeah, agreeable. Don't agreeable listen to statement. rules. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Burn down a library. Okay, bye. Bye.
0: Hello. I am going to shoot you. (laughs) That's what I get. But I'll be reborn and come back as the Prince of California.